Heavenly Father, we ask that our hearts and minds would be at peace so that we can see and understand your son's humility. And Lord, I pray that it would draw us deeply into your love. Amen. Lent is a good time to remember why we process the gospel into the midst of the congregation when we read it. If this is the first time I've said this in your hearing, I apologize. But Lent is a good time to remember that we walk the gospel into the middle of the congregation before it's read is a symbol and a statement that Jesus did not hold himself at a distance from us. He came into our midst out of love. That will factor into the sermon, by the way. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says something interesting. I know this isn't your order of service, but I'm allowed to do this. In verses 7 and 8, he says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, a wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. By rulers of this age, Paul is not talking about the people, the Jewish high priest, the Roman governor, the king, Herod. He's talking about the devil, the princes of darkness themselves. And he makes the statement that if they had understood what they were doing, they would not have had Jesus crucified. In other words, they were deceived. They were tricked. C.S. Lewis plays on this theme in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where when Aslan offers his life for the traitor Edmund, the witch thinks that she's won. But what she doesn't understand in C.S. Lewis's beautiful phrase is the deeper magic, that if the innocent gives his life for the traitor, that power over the traitor becomes undone. The stone table, the place of sacrifice itself, breaks. Which was tricked. Is that sort of idea that Paul is offering to us. And it's a line of thinking that the early church actually spent a lot of time thinking about. The idea that there was a trap laid for the devil. That Jesus was the bait in the trap. And that the devil had no idea what he was doing. In fact, you go to seminary, you might hear it called the mousetrap theory of salvation, that Christ was the bait in a trap. We tend to interpret Jesus' death as he paid a debt for my sin. And the early church spent a lot more time talking about the fact that he tricked and conquered the devil. Both are true. Both are scriptural. The first focuses on the punishment for sin in our own deep need to pay that punishment. The second actually focuses on the fact that we are enslaved, that there's a power that we can't break free of bigger than us, holding us captive. And Jesus came to break those bonds through this maneuvering with the devil. Both are scriptural, and we need both of those messages. We can imagine this idea that the devil was tricked, that he had no idea what he was doing when he had Jesus crucified, had no idea what sort of life it would unleash when he put the Son of God to the death. 
But the early church actually took it farther than that. They thought it was more profound of a trick than just the devil didn't know what he was doing. In fact, the early church, the first Christians, thought that the devil didn't even know who Jesus was. That may strike you as a really strange statement. But Ignatius of Antioch, one of the three most important theologians in the second generation of the church, a disciple of John the Baptist, said that who the offspring of Mary was was hidden from the prince of the world. John's disciple believed that the devil didn't know who Jesus was. You jump forward a couple of centuries to Gregory of Nazianzus, a great theologian of the fourth century, and Gregory of Nazianzus says that the devil thought that he was just attacking a man. But in the end, too late, he found out that he was wrestling with God himself. In this view that the early church had, the devil knew that Jesus was God's agent. He just thought he was another agent like a Moses or Elijah. And in that thinking, to bring him down would actually thwart God. He didn't know, in other words, that he was actually fighting with God himself. Now, that's kind of a weird view, and you don't need to believe it. But there's a number of verses in the New Testament that begin to make sense in that view. And that one in 1 Corinthians 2 is one of those ones that they just didn't understand. I was mentioning these ideas to Justin, and he texted me, Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power by the Spirit in the resurrection. Declared the Son of God in the resurrection. Declared to whom? And the idea that lies behind that is that the resurrection was a declaration to the whole cosmos. This is actually the Son of God that we're dealing with. In fact, Jesus' frequent insistence that people not tell anybody after a miracle begins to make more sense. I think our inclination is just to interpret it as don't tell other people because they won't understand what to do with this knowledge. But from the early church's perspective, no one's supposed to know. Not the devil, not people, because Jesus is working behind enemy lines. If you know your Lord of the Rings, it begins to feel a lot like the way Gandalf treats Aragorn. Don't let Sauron know who this is until it's too late. Don't let him see that his doom is on the horizon. If you don't know your Lord of the Rings, you ought to. This view actually brings out, by the way, Lord of the Rings is not essential for salvation. <laughs> but, I'm just kidding. This view actually brings out a whole new side to the temptation. Because instead of the devil actually attacking whom he knows as the Son of God, I mean, if the devil knows exactly who Jesus is, what does he think he's going to accomplish here? But if he doesn't know who he is, suddenly this makes sense that he would try to bring him down. If he's just God's agent, another humanly agent like a Moses or Elijah, this temptation begins to make a great deal of sense. And the other part of it, and this is something that's picked up in a lot of the accounts in the early church as they wrestle with this, is that in the temptation, if the devil doesn't know who Jesus is exactly, there's a probing going on an attempt to ascertain the identity and the power of this particular man. And so those questions, if you are the son of God, suddenly take on a whole new life. That the devil is not just taunting and mocking, 
he's actually trying to figure out who this enemy that his, he's dealing with. He's trying to bring him down and to figure out what sort of power that he might have. He's testing his opponent. Even if he suspects he is the son of God, does he understand what that means? After all, the Jews didn't. These prophecies were given and stated, and yet the ramifications of them, that it would be God himself in the flesh and not just a humanly Messiah, were unclear to many. And perhaps they were unclear to the devil as well. Perhaps this is this probing moment. And Jesus' response in that probing moment is profound because he refuses to show his identity. In fact, his own actions begin to make more sense. He refuses to show his identity because he won't do the miracles the devil tells him to do to prove who he is. And so when the devil says, if you are the son of God, turn the stone into bread, what does he do? He does what all humans are supposed to do, quotes the scriptures and leans on them as the means of actually hiding his identity. He refuses to show. He rests on the word of God. He doesn't let the devil see his power. And so the devil leaves none the wiser. I have to read this because it's so good. This is Aelfric. Aelfric was a great English theologian of the 10th century. Aelfric. And Aelfric said, the devil wondered what Jesus were whether he were the son of God who had been promised to mankind. The devil said in his thoughts that he would prove what he were. Uncertain he came, the devil, to Christ, and uncertain he went away, seeing that Jesus manifested not his power to him, but overcame him patiently by the Holy Scriptures. The point is, is that Jesus did what any person would do in temptation if they were faithful, simply rest on the word of God not show his own power or authority. By the way, you can actually not believe this idea that the devil didn't know who he was, and the point still will stand in this sermon. You might actually protest at this point. You might go, but wait a minute. There are demons who sometimes say to Jesus, I know who you are. Those exceptions actually prove the point. Because in the, <laughs> this is so good. People were clapping during a song in Lent. And we've got, I love this. <laughs> Bodes well for a good Lent. The exceptions actually prove the point. Because it's in the displays of Jesus' power and authority that the demons recognize who he is. And that's exactly what he refused to give to the devil. In those moments when demons recognize him, it's exactly because he's doing something that the scriptures say explicitly shows his authority. So later in Mark 1, we have one of those moments. And what Mark says explicitly is his authority was evident through the way that he was teaching. He was teaching as one with authority, and the devil saw it and recognized. But then Jesus binds him to silence. You can't tell this. And we think, tell whom? Who would the devil go tell? You can't go back and report it to your captain, your lieutenant, and up the chain in the devilish army. It's in the displays of authority that they recognize, and he binds them to silence in those moments, and it's that exact display of authority that he refuses to give to the devil himself. He merely quotes the word of God. He does not speak with the authority of God himself. He speaks the words of Moses back to the devil. The reality is, is the devil doesn't have omniscience. He and God aren't on the same level. 
This isn't like the varsity team playing the JV team. We're not even on the same, in the same ballpark. He can be blinded by his own pride and lust for power. And even if he recognized who Jesus was, and this is what I meant, you don't need to believe this, but even if he recognized Jesus, who Jesus was, Paul is clear that he didn't understand it. He didn't know what he was dealing with. And so the question that arises is what didn't he understand? Why didn't he get it? Why didn't he recognize him? And the point that's clear, whether or not it's he knew who he was, but he didn't understand what he was doing, or he didn't even know who he was, the point is clear. What the devil can't get is the fact that Jesus' power is veiled. That his power is covered and hidden. By the way, Jesus' power is not always veiled. In that strange reading from 1 Peter 3 that I'm not going to talk about, It says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. It's a scene that interpreters disagree about what it's even talking about. But one thing all interpretations have in common is that this is a massive display of power. This is Jesus crashing through the gates of hell itself, proclaiming who he is. There is no veiling of power in this moment. You think about Romans 1.4. The spirit empowered by the resurrection of the dead proclaimed that he was the son of God. There is nothing veiled anymore. Jesus' power is not always veiled. But it's that sort of open display of power that he refuses to give to the devil. And the devil can't understand it. Perhaps he doesn't even know who he's dealing with. And the simple answer is that when he sees Jesus in this veiled mode, it doesn't register. If you were to frame it more simply, the devil doesn't understand humility. And that's the key. That's why I said it doesn't really matter how you parse this idea that the devil didn't know what was going on. The point that's clear is that the devil doesn't understand humility. Jesus comes to him in utter weakness, physical weakness, 40 days in the desert without food. You can imagine him dragging himself to this confrontation. The devil taunts him, goads him, prods him, prods him, and Jesus refuses to show any sort of power. You can imagine a man desperate and hungry, and he simply said, do you remember Moses' words? I'll stick by them. He comes in humility and weakness, and the devil can't get it. I want to turn from that idea, but we're going to come back to it in just a second. And I want to turn to the thing that immediately preceded this temptation in the wilderness, the baptism of Jesus. Because at the baptism of Jesus, the Father called Jesus the beloved Son. It's actually the same thing that he said at the transfiguration. Those are the two moments when he said this unique phrase, this is my beloved Son. And it's a phrase that evokes another story. It's a phrase that evokes the sacrifice of Isaac. The father says it twice to the son. And the father said this same phrase to Abraham. Because to Abraham in Genesis 22, he said, take Isaac, your only son, your beloved son, and take him to the mountain that I will show you. The sacrifice of Isaac is preceded by the father's declaration that this is the beloved son. 
And because of Abraham's willingness to actually follow God in that, God said to him, excuse me, I should be in the right chapter before I read it. Because of that, he said, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, he says, in your offspring, all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That phrase, beloved son, catches up a son offered, but it also catches up a son offered in obedience that because he's offered in obedience, salvation and blessing come to the entire rest of the world. In other words, it's a phrase with a great deal of resonance and meaning. It evokes this older story of sacrifice, of obedience, and of salvation that comes to the world. That's the phrase that the Father spoke at the baptism of Jesus. And you go, why did he speak this phrase with all this resonance and meaning here? And it's because it's in the baptism of Jesus that Jesus takes the first pivotal step towards the cross. He takes the first pivotal step to be that obedient sacrifice through whom salvation will come to the world. He steps in the water to be named amongst the sinners. And in that pivotal step, the father says, beloved son, you remember the story? The son offered an obedient sacrifice for the blessing and salvation of the world. This is it, beloved son. The reason why he says that the transfiguration is the same. Immediately preceding the transfiguration, Jesus told the disciples that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And the disciples didn't like that message. And it's at that moment of the declaration of going to Jerusalem to die that the Father says again, beloved son. It's at these pivotal steps when he moves into the water to be one with sinners. And when he moves towards Jerusalem and the cross that the Father actually make those, makes that declaration that you are the beloved Son. My point in bringing this story into the temptation narrative in this idea that the devil can't understand humility is very simply that both of those movements are movements of profound humility. In the waters of baptism, Jesus steps into the water to be named amongst the sinners. It's a movement of profound humility. And in the turn to the cross, Jesus goes to offer his life for the salvation of others, giving it away freely. It's these two movements, these movements of profound humility that cause the Father to say, beloved son. And it's this sort of humility that the devil can't understand. He understands power, but not giving your life away being named with a sinner. This sort of humility is actually pretty difficult for us to understand as well. I mean, if we are honest, power, wealth, influence, intelligence, beauty, these are the qualities that the world respects. We might speak affirmingly of humility, but go look what we do when we're overlooked or disregarded or unfairly accused. Our pride comes out full bore in those moments. We might speak highly of humility, but the idea of actually identifying with the weak, being named amongst them, being seen as one of them, 
the idea of actually giving our life away to somebody else. These things don't come very easily to natural man. They don't make any more sense to us than they did to the devil, in other words. When we choose acts of humility, if y'all are like me, it's oftentimes laced with pride. There may be some genuine humility, desire to follow Jesus in there, but there's also a great deal of desire to be seen doing the acts of humility. To know in my heart that I'm actually better than so-and-so because look what I'm doing. Look how far I'm willing to go. Our humility doesn't come easily. And the point is very simply is it doesn't make sense to a fallen heart. And it makes no more sense to our fallen hearts than it did to the devil. And the only reason why we have some degree of humility is because of the work of Jesus in us. That this is not something that fallen humanity gets. Jesus' humility is not an abstraction. I think this is actually fairly important. I probably should speed up. Too much time talking about weird views of the devil in the early church. Jesus' humility is not an abstraction. It's not a pious sentiment. This isn't a hallmark card. It is an utter, 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 concrete and real relinquishing of himself. His humility isn't like ours, laced with this sense of proving that he's better by virtue of humility. Instead, his humility, it springs from this profound trust in the Father. But his humility, very simply, is the recognition that his life is not his own. And this, more than anything, I think is the key. That in trust to the Father, the Son looked at his own life and said, not mine. It's not mine. I give it away to another. It was a gift freely given, not something to be held onto. His humility is a concrete willingness to obey the will of God. Does it cost deprivation? Yes. Hunger, thirst, no bed, no family, no home, no pillow. Yes. Does it cost his reputation? People will mock you, not understand you. Yes. It's the concrete willingness to say that my life is an offering to God and I'm not going to worry about what happens to it. It's his. It's not weakness or cowardice. It's not thinking lowly of himself. Jesus, in his humility, was actually being able to be quite fierce. Peter, get behind me, Satan. The Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. The priests and the merchants in the temple, you are turning God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. His humility was not self-deprecation. It was not weakness. It was not cowardice. It was not thinking lowly of himself. He had an enormous amount of confidence and fierceness when the situation demanded. But he never regarded his life as his own. His humility said, I don't care the cost, my life is God's, and he can do with it what he pleases. And that willingness to say my life is God's means if he says step in with those dirty people and be called dirty with them, he said, okay. And if he says go without food, he says, okay. And if he says have no reputation of value, he says, okay. His humility is a willingness to see his life as an offering. 
You remember the story of Isaac. Because in freely offering this thing that God asks, salvation and blessing comes to the entire world. His humility is a willingness to give himself away. If I am honest, and I doubt that I'm the only one in this category, if I played the game of relinquishment, where you relinquish all sorts of things in your life, one of the hardest things to relinquish is my own will. I don't know where it ranks against some of the other things, but I know that it's in the top few. Relinquishing my own will is incredibly difficult. I wake up in the morning and I have my agenda for the day. And if it doesn't come to pass, I am frustrated. This is an ordinary course of humility, I mean of humanity. But it's the humility of Jesus that actually says, I'm not playing that way. My life is the Father's, not my own. It's a profound, concrete self-offering that says I will stop evaluating my life based on whether I get out of it what I think I ought to get out of it. And instead, it's the willingness to simply say, it is the Father's. That's the humility that the devil couldn't understand because it makes no sense to human pride or devilish pride. It makes no sense to our desire for self-advancement. The first opportunity that humans were given for self-advancement, their own agenda, the private will, Adam and Eve offered the fruit and they take it. And for most of us, it only takes one offer too before we're immediately working for what will advance me. It's good to actually be reminded of these things because we are actually called to this sort of humility. Not in our own strength, but by the grace of God, we are called to, like him, be named with sinners to give our life away to other people, to stop thinking about our life in terms of this is mine, but instead start thinking about it as this is God's. Not as a hallmark sentiment, a pious phrase, but a concrete reality that says, and you can do whatever you please with it. That's what we're called to in the grace of Jesus. But it's actually not there that I want to close. I want to close very simply with the image of Jesus in the water. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, a season when we're supposed to come face to face with our own sin. We're supposed to spend seven weeks in self-examination and honest appraisal. It's hard, and it's so easy to run from that process through apathy or laziness or distraction or pride or self-justification. We have a lot of means of shirking that path. My encouragement to y'all is don't shirk it. Be honest. That may raise things in you that are places of shame and guilt, things you don't want to see. But if we don't honestly see those things, we won't understand the love of Jesus Christ. Because his humility is such that whatever the depths that you have descended to, he has descended there with you. The deepest place of shame in your heart that you try not to confront is actually the place where he has stood in the water beside you saying, I will be called that too with you. Remember that this humility is what we are called to, but remember that this is humility is also for you. It's for me. The Lord Jesus coming to exactly the lowest place that we are and saying at this very place, I will be called by your name. I will be called by your name 
and your shame so that you can be called my mine. The Lord's humility was for your salvation, not just to set a great moral example that we will never live up to. And so as we go through this process of self-examination and Lent, let the reality of your sin drive you to the love of Jesus, who in humility has joins you at the very depths of where you have gone. Amen.